You're listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Let's get dangerous. Episode 10 starts now. Welcome to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. My name is Justin Connors and I'm here with Jamie. And we are going to jump into part two of our two-part interview with Tad Stones. And uh, we're just going to cut, jump right back in where we left off. So getting but back, really, to, back to me, back to you. Back to <laughs> me. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so you I mean, you touched on this. You were in feature animation for a while before you moved over to television. And that that correct well, television didn't exist. Actually, the yeah. I can't I'm terrible with actual dates, but I know I started again. I started as a trainee. And then after the trainee, you survive that you become an in-betweener. Uh, the only way you get ahead was, um, oh, I got to back up. This isn't necessarily about me. My second test I did, everybody was talking about Black Cauldron. It was always this carrot hung out there. It's like, oh, this is the great movie we're going to do in the future. Um, and all they had was the rights to the books, and there wasn't really much done on it. But um, I took a scene, a character out of it, and I created my second personal test about it. And I had a dinosaur in it. And, and uh, whatever I, I survived. I, I got, the, <laughs> I got in. But it, it showed at the same time as Ron Clemens did his uh, third personal test. In other words, the one he did on his in his own time. Um, everybody knows Ron is a director. The only because he moved right into that right after Fox and Hound. He went into story and then directing. Um, he showed this test of Cruella Deville. And uh, Jasper, who's the short fat criminal mm-hmm. from 101 Dalmatians. It was literally, and this is without exaggeration, good enough that it could have been in the feature film. Wow. Um, the guys were astounded by it. Uh, so I remember Frank and Ollie coming into the training room, Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnson, yeah. uh, coming in and say, here are the geniuses or animation masters. And it quickly walked past me right to Ron. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, Frank snagged him as an assistant, and uh, uh, you know, a few months later, Ollie snagged Glenn Keane as an, as his kind of trainee. Yeah. Um, and, and like eight months later, or something like that, you know, the manager department says, "Well, you know what they, yeah, you, know, you know how they reacted to your test." And I said, "Actually, no, <laughs> <laughs> no one ever told me. I have no idea." Well, I guess. Um, Anyway, I got sidetracked on that. So anyway, you became an in-betweener as soon as you survived the test, and you had to do your personal test. And I kept on coming with ideas, getting them started, and then I'd say, oh, I got a better idea, or here's something more ambitious, or oh, that's stupid, that's too ambitious, I should scale this. And um, there were everything from, um, I did one with uh, Br'er Fox, Honest John Fox from Pinocchio, and uh, ended with Robin Hood at the end. Um, All foxes. All foxes. That was just my whole thing. Uh, then I did one with uh, Madame Mim Merlin around a table. She gets turned into a snake. Forget much more than that. Anyway, <laughs> I was coming through these things. And then uh, one day this, that manager of the department came by and I was looking at an old piece of film in the movieola. And going, in other words, one of my older ideas. And I say, Ed, come in here. Let me show you this. And I showed it to him. I said, do you think th- I want to show you this to see if it's you think it's worth me going back into this and getting this ready to present? And he went, Oh no, that looks great. We got, yeah, we'd kind of given up on you. And I went, 
That is not what you want to hear. No one thought to maybe mention that. There was no like six month <laughs> review. Um, and it was because I was constantly coming up with new ideas for tests and not showing them. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I got moved up technically to an assistant animator at that time. Um, but I realized that I was having more fun figuring out what the character should do than making them do it. Yeah. Uh, and I was pretty, I mean, I was brand new, but I was fairly good. Although you can't tell from the one scene I have in the rescuers, but, um, I did great flip books that impressed people. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I realized that's when I started trying to get into the story and I did story on Fox and Hound back then though. Not everybody got a credit. The, Credits that go on for eight minutes didn't come around until um, Black Cauldron. Um, so it was really at the whim of the directors. And I worked for Wooly Reitherman um, on the sequences that I did. And then the new guys came in and they're the ones who finished. And when it finished up, I was over at WED. So kind of out of sight, out of mind, I ended up not getting credit. And I kind of accepted that until... Uh, I found out they gave credit to Squeaks the Worm as himself. <laughs> and it's like, really? So you gave a credit to an imaginary creation and sound effect as opposed to me who actually storyboarded the hunter setting out traps to capture Todd and this other oh, sequence. No. So that rubbed me a little wrong way. But strangely enough, because I kind of knew how futile it was, the fact that I didn't make an issue of it um, the guy said, well, let me see if I can get you credit. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I did story on Fox and Hound. Then they asked me to do an educational film, um, called health and alcohol abuse. And it was like a special project thing. And I did that and it got produced in New Zealand. And, uh, uh, that was fine. But because of that, was that animated or was that live action? It was animated. Okay. And uh, then they wanted me to, to repurpose some old ones of uh, it was called our friend the atom or something. But it was one of those <laughs> things where the it was about atomic power and wonderful. And so the images they had like a genie coming out. And he would kind of sprinkle his magic over the <laughs> corn, and the corn grew up stronger and all that. I said, guys, you look at this, and all you can see is nuclear fallout and mutating <laughs> vegetables. I said, how is this a good thing? And they kind of went, oh, what do you mean? I got to talk myself out of that job. But because I had been connected to the educational side, um, they were starting up Epcot, and yeah. they wanted me to – to go over there and give it, give it a shot. Yeah. So I was over there, like I say, worked with Ward Kimball a little bit on this space thing and then uh, ended up on Imagination Pavilion. And then I was supposed to produce the documentaries based on Epcot that turned out the networks didn't want. Uh, but that got me in TV. And for a while there, they had me, in, and this is well before Michael Eisner, they had me um, investigate whether they could, getting into television animation because consumer products wanted to have products for people to consume yeah. <laughs> and features only came out like once every yeah. four years. And uh, ongo ongoing toy line is good. And, uh, 
but really it was, even though I was supposed to do the research, it was like one phone call was enough that this guy was very excited about the idea that Disney getting TV. I said, no, they don't want to do a clip show. And the guy just stopped. He says, that's all you can afford. You can't, <laughs> you can only do a clip show like the old Bugs Bunny show unless you use an overseas studio. And Disney had been through a strike and part of the strike, a recent one, not the old one, uh, was about overseas production. But the union did not win that point. There's plenty of production overseas. Um, And for a while, I actually had a deal with Marvel. I had a meeting with Marvel Studios because the idea was, well, we can, they already have a pre-existing deal with overseas studios. They can do the shows for us and then we're distancing ourselves. But ultimately it was like, no, Disney wanted to control the creative side of things. Right. So all you'd really be doing is instead of shipping your stuff overseas, you ship it to Marvel and they would ship overseas. So it made no sense. Um, and that is when, and that is why when uh, Eisner came, now Eisner started in TV animation right. uh, at ABC studios. Uh, so it was not a dirty word to him. And he felt like the name Disney should be the top name anywhere animation is so it doesn't mean your television animation is going to look like feature animation it means it should be the best animation on and when i say animation i mean both literally and and story-wise telling memorable stories it should be the best in each of those fields um so the first week he was there i was actually on vacation i got a call from these consumer product guys i had worked with um, saying, would you mind, we know you're on vacation, but would you mind coming to Michael Eisner's house <laughs> on Sunday? It's like, yeah, like I'm going to say no to that. So we went and another uh, guy who's trying to do a book on TV animation was trying to be logical about it. He says, okay, you were there as the representative from features, but then why were these consumer products guys there? And I said, you're trying to be what you are connecting dots that aren't there. Yeah, uh, which a lot of people do with Disney because they think, oh, Disney's so synergistic. Everybody knows what everyone's doing. It was because <laughs> these consumer products guys had looked into TV animation. The Gary Kreisel um, had taken the record company and turned it into a powerhouse by creating these novelty records, almost like Weird Al Yankovic type yeah. records, but with going quackers and yeah, yeah, yeah. things totally remade the property and he did it with Jim Magon who he had gone to school with as his kind of creative, you know, number two. Um, and they were the ones who came up with this show called jumble Isle about this place where the cross winds, the trade winds cross and animals were smashed together. So they were half one thing and half another. And again, this is still before Eisner. They showed it to different toy companies. Um, to see if there was any interest. And uh, I think, it was, I guess it was Hasbro, who, as soon as they started the pitch, they stopped and left the room. Oh. They said their faces kind of turned white. And then they contact them and they say, we have what amounts to the exact same property. We call it the Wuzzles. And it's due to be a line of plush toys next spring or whatever. Oh, man. And Disney decided, well, instead of fighting them, let's team up and kind of do a project together now i don't know exactly how the timeline worked but obviously this type of thing was discussed with michael eisner 
as he's meeting with the heads of different companies, what he got going on. And we'd like to go into this area, but that's why in a later New York times magazine article, I think Eisner said, I told him to get the top creative minds of Disney together. It was like, <laughs> so we were going to have t-shirts made. I'm one sixth of the top. Creative <laughs> minds. Uh, but it was purely because I had done work with them before on like sport goofy and Mickey and the space pirates. Uh, one of which was done um, <laughs> that, you know, they thought maybe we ought to have one animation guy in that, this meeting. Um, and so I pitched, and even then that first meeting, Michael said, no, we can't do Mickey until we know he can pull it off. He's too precious. He's too special. Right. So it's like he, Michael Eisner gets tarred with a very uh, black brush for his second 10 years. His first 10 years, everybody loved him. Yeah. Right. The company was just this very tiny thing. And I remember animators getting upset with the idea that they were going to release Pinocchio on VHS. It's just like, they're too, no, they shouldn't be doing that. It it demeans them. And I said, do you have a copy of Snow White on VHS? It was like, yeah, I got a bootleg. Of that. <laughs> so how come you get to have it and not the person, you know, out there? And it's going to bring in all this extra money. And of course, you know, now you don't think twice about the idea of home. Sure. Right. Um, but the company was so small back then. I posted, there's a invite only website called I worked at Disney in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It's about future animation <laughs> wow. when it was still pencil and paper as opposed to pixels. Um, and people have been posting photographs. And uh, I posted one. I said, people don't understand how small Disney was. Here's an example. Hey, Ron Miller, can I have the dragon head from Dragon Slayer? That's the back lot. <laughs> sure, Tad. <laughs> I rented a truck and here it is in my driveway. Oh my gosh. Wow. And here's Ron Clemens and Ed Gombert yanking it off the back of a truck with me. Um, wow. It was just a, a tiny place. They used to use the sound stages to store 16 millimeter film. We used to get up in the catwalks and throw off super balls. <laughs> I'm sure they're still tucked away in some rafter. Uh, it was just a tiny, tiny place. Uh, and when Eisner and Katzenberg, Frank Wells, you know, came in, they just kind of created, they were surprised at how much depth of creativity there was there. Right. And it was kind of like, why aren't you guys letting this out? So there's always the tendency to, to demonize various bosses. But those guys, especially Jeffrey, loved movies. Uh, they made, I remember a joke with the old guard for Black Cauldron. Jeffrey went to a sweat box to, to see the latest footage. And he said, it was the horn King walking down some steps. He said, do you have this from another angle? And there's a little <laughs> bit of quiet. <laughs> Joe Hale, the director of the head of the project said, we can draw it from another angle. <laughs> and everybody chuckled, I'm sure, including Jeffrey. And some people made said, look, he doesn't know anything. He made that kind of comment. My reaction was, he was thinking about it like a movie. Yeah. He was saying that you need this from a different angle to get more power to it. Um, before that, I think Don Bluth used to talk about animation all the time when he was there. And he would talk about, you guys should study mimes or go to the ballet, mm -hmm. uh, look at theater, how people act bigger and all that. And Ron Clemens said, 
why doesn't he ever talk about go see a movie? Yeah. Because animation yeah. is a movie. It's projected. It goes on a screen. It's images in succession. Um, and he was so right. And what really took off is when they started treating them like movies with character arcs and emotional arcs. And they kind of went in with an intent, not just what feels good. It was Disney features used to be done in a very strange way. They kind of, they generally optioned a property or had a public domain thing. Um, they kind of talk it out. They talk out these, the, um, clothesline they would call it or the backbone of the movie, which are the basic beats. And then you would say like in Fox and Han, you'd say, okay, well, here's where the two pups would meet. Um, what are ways they could meet? And then, story guy would go away and start making sketches of uh oh they're in a swimming hole they're playing hide and seek they're you know um over tipping the dirty laundry by a clothesline and then you have a meeting on that and people say oh wait a minute there's something there in that hide and seek idea because he's going to be hunting him later that's part of the story so come up with, let's study that and you do a bunch of gags on just hide and seek uh, and then you start putting them in order and maybe putting some temporary dialogue in there. And then the writer at that time, Larry Clemens, um, he'd come in and kind of do a pass at the dialogue. So there was no script. It was developed visually, which one, made sure there were strong visuals. Yeah. Uh, two, it allowed for cheats that you didn't even realize was happening because if it played well on real, if you didn't like hitch on it, then it's a cheat that's going to work with the audience. I always point to the opening sequence of Indiana Jones as similar stuff. It's like, you are there. You don't question anything. It's one of the most fantastic sequences of all time. I mm -hmm. said, now look at it. He puts sand in a bag, <laughs> takes a step toward the cave. On the next cut, he's 30 feet into the cave. And by the way, somehow he got covered with tarantulas on his back. <laughs> um, and then one of the huge things that now everybody's pointed out, but it's like, he puts his hand in a beam of light and suddenly this booby trap swings where the previous guy was impaled on spikes because the Aztecs really big on photovoltaics felt, <laughs> but you don't question it. It just felt right. It's like, and they had pressurized air canisters to shoot yeah. all those little poison darts out at you. They were well ahead of their, well ahead of their time. Yeah. And, it, and the other one I always point out is, Oh, there's a guy on the front of the car that I want to kill. Now, yeah. I have a truck full of guys with guns. I could stop and shoot that guy. <laughs> or I could signal for you to slow down. Don't stop. Just slow down so we can crush him in between. It <laughs> makes no sense. But, man, love that stuff. You, you that don't question fantastic. it. Right. And so making animated films that way really led for stuff like that. Well, once they brought in scripts, they really had a great structure and very smartly in TV, when you get a script, that's the script you do. And depending on your show, you'll add to it. But you know, that's the structure. Those are the dialogue. That's what you're going with. And features, they would then take that script or outline and then go through that same process of developing things visually and putting them on real and then saying, is this all working as a whole? And, you know, sometimes they trip and fumble and, and they have to redo things. But that's the way of keeping things visuals. People used to think like, why should we animate this? And it's like if it didn't have a funny animal in it or something. Right. It's like animation can do anything. It has nothing. 
people used to think like if there's less dialogue and animation it's it's better animation it's like really because yeah. <laughs> i can point to a lot of years of the simpsons that's pretty great entertainment yeah. and they talk a lot you yeah. know and it's not about how they move yet i can also see things from the, the later fantasia that that's got no dialogue at all and is fantastic it's just mm-hmm. different you know yeah. um it's just a different form of storytelling yeah exactly yeah and it's different tools for storytelling yeah yeah I'm a huge Darkwing Duck fan. When I when it was on, I was only my daughter's age now, so I was around seven or eight when it was on. So I was at the time period where, you know, it was like everything in my cartoon world. I don't, you know what? You get it all the time from the fans, I'm sure. And uh, something that I always loved about it as a kid was the lines, uh, the lines that he had, like the "I am the terror who flaps in the night," and then he would come back with something, and I just picked one off the internet. Like, uh, I am the fingernail that scrapes the blackboard. And that, that to me as a kid was everything. And, you know, we would run around with toys and we would, we would say that to each other. Now, when you guys were creating it, was there a moment where you were just like, aha, we have to do that as a line? Or did it... There was, but not exactly when you might think. Okay. Um, I certainly came up with um, Let's Get Dangerous. Right. And the lesser known suck gas evildoers. Yeah. <laughs> we got many le- letters remember, on because oh, not, I remember that one. Not, uh, not every mother heard the G of gas. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was my mom. She, what did you say? <laughs> but I, I mean, Darkwing, you know, started out as a secret agent, ended up as a superhero, and by way of the pulps. And I love the shadow old radio shows. I mean, right. I was. I'm not that old. I, you know, I heard them in collections or specials, you know, or radio or tapes, never on the actual radio, but I love the weed of crime, you know, bears bitter fruit, you know, what mm-hmm. evil lurks in the hearts of men and all that. I said, Oh, dark wing and have something like that. Right. So I did the, I'm the terror that flaps in the night. It was, I think as early as like our third script or something, we, and we put a lot of stories in development. So it right. just, as it came through, you know, uh launchpad was supposed to be darkwing or for whatever reason he had to dress up as darkwing and then he had to pull it up and he could never get the lines right so instead <laughs> of i'm the flaps of the night he would say i'm the road salt that rusts the underside of your car right we thought it was hilarious and i said because i'm not a big continuity guy i, said, I don't care i said yeah. that's what darkwing's going to do in every single episode he has Perfect. to do that it's like yeah, it's a great bit for this goofy sidekick, but that's just a great bit. And why can't the hero have that? Right. So that's, it literally came from that script that, and then me being the genius of saying, I'm stealing that and putting it over <laughs> here. I mean, it's the same thing with Negaduck. Fans come up with these weird twisted ways of, wait, this guy was created by a beam and he split into Pazaduck and Negaduck. And then he's got this negaverse over here and they're trying to put them together. And it's like, no, we did the first script. And I said, I like that character. Let's do him again. And the writers went, how? I said, just do it. We don't need an explanation. Just bring him back. Because that's how Civil Age comics were. You know, How many yeah. times has Batman locked somebody, somebody up in Arkham? Which right. evidently has a revolving door instead of bars. Because <laughs> you know the villains are always out and you don't have this big long sequence of how did they escape? Um, so even today when there's 
such rigid continuity in comics, they still don't waste a bunch of time saying how each guy breaks out of jail or got a suspended sentence or whatever. Um, so, you know, that was my thing with Darkwing. A lot of it is based on right. Silver Age sensibilities of yeah. the wackiness that was back then. And so those funny phrases, bringing back villains because they're good villains, you right. know, uh, paying more attention to making each episode entertaining as opposed to some ongoing arc, you know. Okay. And uh, I was recently, like, getting ready for the interview. We were always rewatching a lot of the shows, just you know, for nostalgia's sake. And I have my daughter watching some of them with me. And me and Jamie, we, Jamie and I were even talking about this. We noticed that the writing just really held up, and she was right, she was into it just as I was, and you know, when I was a kid, and that was, you know, how twenty some years ago. And I like just the writing is the, it's funny, and I'm catching things now as an adult that I wouldn't have caught when I was a kid, of course. And I'm just wondering when you were doing that, did you like, I, I don't know if cartoons really do that this, these day and age, was it something you guys were doing on purpose? I think, they, I think cartoons do it even more now. Okay. You watch something like gravity falls, which is like, they're hiding things in the opening sequence of episode one that pay off in episode five. And right. now it's all coming together. I mean, it's, it's a great show. Um, but we were just trying to write what we were funny. I mean, one of my favorite episodes is Darkwing is literally the first one. And yep. again, I wrote it and it came out of my, so it's basically, those are the sensibilities I want. And that's that sinking feeling with Professor Moliarty. It was also animated by our Australian studio. So it was like top-notch animation. But in the third act at a certain point, they're on a baseball field and without explanation, everybody's dressed in, baseball uniforms it's like that was that warner brothers wackiness it's like suddenly bugs being dressed in drag or or showing up as the umpire you know and it's like well where did he get the umpire suit you don't worry about that uh that i wish we had done more in the episodes and right. we didn't really you know again that's a sensibility i wanted and i didn't often see that because when we were in thick of it i had great story editors but you know, you do the story that's in your face and I'm not pushing saying, no, no, tell your story my way. You know, right. now I would probably do a better handout and saying maybe even after a script came out that I really liked to actually talk about it and say, Hey, this is what I liked about it. Here's something we're missing or do more of. I mean, one time when we did the twin beaks episode, um, the original writer of it was Jan Stranod who had, done comics with um I'm blanking on the guy's name uh back in the heavy metal ages did the character <laughs> den has worked at hellboy richard corbin um anyway uh <clears throat> he loved twin peaks too but i said it has to play for people who aren't who've never seen the show which means 99 percent of our audience um above that probably yeah and his first shot, it had all these Twin Peak references, but they didn't make sense. They were just stuck in there. So they weren't they weren't funny unless you knew the reference. And by that time, it's kind of slated in production. So I just took it over because I knew that um, Jan took on a different assignment. And I knew that if I gave it to somebody else, I'd risk the same thing happening. Right. So then I put in what became Twin Beaks. Uh, 
we really enjoyed the show. And I tested it with one of my story editors had never seen Twin Peaks. And he said, I really like that. It was such a different feeling. And, all that. <laughs> and we really wanted to say, what are other shows we can kind of do parodies, but make it our own type thing. And we just never came up with one. Cause again, the schedule is always there in your face. You have to come up with another script. Yeah. Uh, so it's what people pitch and all that, but we never found another way of doing that. But, you know, again, that's a case of as an adult looking for this, piece of entertainment that steer us in a different direction but i even like going back to that first script there's a little scene of moliarty eating a hot dog up in the stands i just remember this little character (laughs) moment you know it's just like his little just how he said certain lines i just loved you know yeah um i was reading an interview that you did with a website and i pulled a quote from it that you said um, you said it was fun creating an original show in an era we may never see again and that you could just do whatever you felt was funny. Do you think that's something that uh, current animators and creators aren't going to, they're not getting to do as much as you did or. Well, it's, it's, it's different. different. I mean, there's certainly super original shows on right. uh, gravity falls being one adventure time is another, obviously the avatar and uh, legend of Korra. Um, these are all the visions of certain creators that have done fantastic jobs. Um, what was unique about the Disney afternoon is that it's in some ways, the virtual lack of oversight uh, in that <laughs> the development you'd be under a microscope. Once you sold it to Michael, then you're you got your boss looking at you really worried about those early, like three scripts, but then he's busy. He has to run the, the rest of the company or right. the, animation worry about the next show um so you're kind of left alone until the first piece of animation came back and then it was like the microscope again (laughs) and then you move on and then there was always a little bit of panic just before it's going to go on the air um but in the meantime it's like if i woke up in the morning and said i want to do something with atomic penguins (laughs) oh maybe they get irradiated what could they do i just like the idea of them sliding like rockets down the ice maybe they bring ice to new york or you know what can we do um and we'd spend like four hundred fifty thousand dollars on that idea (laughs) um what was great for me on darkwing is that our executive who's assigned to the show to give notes was greg wiseman who had not been there that long well greg's background is a dc comics so he knew all the comic tropes we were playing with and had that sensibilities. And the other thing that I don't know the boss understood at the time, that Greg said, you know, I'm, I'm here as the outside observer, like double checking what you guys are doing so you get right. that, someone who's not in the process kind of thing. He said, you don't have to take my notes, but I'm, I'm gonna argue passionately for them. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, I don't think the boss ever wants you to say the words, you don't have to take my notes. <laughs> Uh, but he was fantastic. He really helped in the development of the show just, you know, cause he's a creative guy that he could say, Ooh, what about this or that? Or he, he you know, uh, just in general, not being an impediment to stuff. Uh, but as far as it happening again, it certainly can like Netflix doesn't right. give notes as I understand it. They really let creators go. Um, DreamWorks made a, insane deal with networks where they have a huge number of episodes. I wrote a episode of uh, Puss in Boots, but 
Netflix isn't giving notes. So they had the opportunity to kind of like grease the wheels and do stuff, uh, although it was all based on features. But they kind of, and it's kind of shifting now, and some shows are different than others, but um, there were a lot of notes up front, and they started running through creative leads, would start leaving shows <laughs> or being taken off shows. And it was like, why are you doing this? Because not since the Disney afternoon have you been in a place where you have the order, you've sold it. Now just make the best show possible. I mean, okay. everybody is trying to do that, even the executives, but some of the notes, as I understood them coming through, were people who really didn't, they had feature background because they were, they were protecting the feature characters, but they didn't necessarily have the TV background, meaning, hey, this stuff has to get, get moving. We have to actually get this <laughs> stuff done. So, but I mean, what I've seen over there is just fantastic quality work. So, um, regardless of the behind the scenes or what they could have been or might have been, uh, and those shows are coming out top notch. Right. I'm waiting yeah. for my episode to come out. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, that you actually kind of touched on. I was, we talked to Greg a couple weeks ago, Greg Wiseman, and we asked him that question if we're ever going to see an era like Disney Afternoons again. And uh, I think what you were touching on the era of, like Netflix is kind of changing the scene and Amazon even for writers and creators. So it's kind of neat to see that. Yeah. I mean, Amazon certainly has done it in live action, got an Emmy for yeah. the, you know, their series. Um, I should go back, especially since I have a pitch in with them and really study what they've done in more detail. But a lot of it seems like it's a preschool show and very simplified and what my pitch is, of course, is closer to an old Disney afternoon show with, right. you know, a more active miss, uh, mix, uh, an older audience that wouldn't leave the young audience behind. But <laughs> it's just a different, it's not the babysitter sensibility or the educational sensibility that they might want to hop, you know, hype with moms. It's more like, no, this is something you should be able to watch with your kids and have a lot of fun and everybody should be enjoying it. And uh, I have no idea if they're open to that or right. if their budgets would allow for that, you know. Right. But I think because everything is changing so much, um, who knows? It's just, you know, your execution may vary, mm -hmm. you know. Although it's amazing to watch an, uh, DreamWorks do a show like How to Train Your Dragon mm -hmm. with incredible quality, just technical quality. Right. Is something I wouldn't think that's possible but they're i'm sure they're hitting up against their budgets yeah uh, the same way as some very simple show done in a very simple way it has it's a much lower budget but they're still fighting that and being frustrated by that right jamie did you have any questions on darkwing duck before we go into lightning round that you wanted to ask that you had um it wasn't specific to Darkwing, but it was right at the end. Um, so, like after after Darkwing was over, and the, you know the that original round of the Disney Afternoons, so like Rescue Rangers, Ducktales, those shows, once they were you know more or less a thing of the past, you moved on to Aladdin, and that was also the time when it was the beginning of a lot of those straight continuations from existing films, and then there was you know the Michael Eisner period of the direct-to-video sequels. Um, and I was just well, it's either the Michael Eisner period or the <laughs> Stones period because people can blame me in that how we would do all the Disney afternoon shows. We would do like a four or five part um, 
you know, story to introduce the series. And these would be run vertically. In other words, as a movie, the Friday before the show is supposed to start. So you'd play, let's say it's a four parter. That's the equivalent of a two hour movie slot. So the syndicated market would hype that movie to introduce it. Um, and that's why, I mean, Jim Megan wrote a fantastic one for the introduction of DuckTales. And then you'd go into normal episodes the following Monday, and then that movie would then be divided up into its separate parts, and you'd see it later on. Um, well, obviously, we were doing one for Aladdin, kind of, um, and you never have enough time to really do them right. Um, but I called up home video and said, okay, by definition, I'm doing the sequel to Aladdin. Are you guys interested in releasing it? And all I was trying to do is to keep our budgets up because right. I was figuring like if we could bring in a little more money from home video, <laughs> maybe they wouldn't, you know, cut our budgets. Um, now in reality, now that I know more, it's like, no, video would just take the profits and yeah. <laughs> your budget would stay the same because you'd always be making more money. Um, anyway, they were not interested until they released Aladdin on DVD, uh, which was huge. Uh, mm -hmm. And I called them again. I knew this one guy over there at the, kind of the middle level. And I said, I just wanted to remind you, and this time he was very interested, talked to his boss, they were very interested. And this was pointed out to me later that our boss came into a, we went through the story with him, with all my story editors and all that. And he gave us a bunch of notes. And I said, well, we've got to get these done by March 17th or whatever it was. And he went, why? I said, well, home video is interested in releasing this and we have to get this to them by that time. And he said, that's gravy. If we, if that happens, fine. That's not your concern. We're putting, you know, this stuff on TV. And like I said, this was pointed out after to me that he left and I said, okay, we have to do all those notes, but we have to do it by March 17th. Um, so basically, and I couldn't tell you exact numbers, but you know, that movie Return of Jafar was made for about three and a half million dollars. And I think it made $200 million domestic. Wow. That was one of my favorite movies. <laughs> I, I'm shocked. I don't even have enough. I need to buy a copy. Just a half. Uh, the first half was done by Australia. It felt really good. And then it was our Japanese right. studio. And it just didn't come as well. I feel much better about the, the next one. Um, but it was just, again, real rush job. And uh, right. my uh, so it is kind of the stain on my soul that I carry for all those people. Who hate <laughs> okay. um, and all mine were kind of that I ended up doing were done kind of from the television division, not from the direct to video division. Uh, so mine all had much lower budgets and ended up making more profits. The, the, one that had the most production quality was probably Buzz Lightyear Star Command because mm -hmm. we were moving ahead on the series and then they decided to do the Toy Story sequel. I think that's how it was. Uh, so they said, you can't re release the series before the sequel. So we were still in production, but we didn't have to do that opening movie until the end of production, which meant that we didn't have to spend time de designing the Buzz Lightyear universe because it was already designed in the series. So we just had to do the extra backgrounds for that particular story. So like I say, it ended up 
having more production value on that. We recorded it with, with Patrick Warburton and then they made a deal for um, Tim to come in and, and re-record all the lines in the real Buzz Lightyear voice. Um, and it was, you know, it, it did great. And the, another fun thing is uh, two blocks away from the home, my home I grew up in was an NW root beer stand. Eventually it was torn down and they put an office building there, which became a recording studio. And so basically on the spot where I had my first burrito <laughs> and my NW root beer, um, I recorded William Shatner singing to infinity and beyond. No, um, you didn't. With me being the chorus of the aliens. So if wow. you have a DVD and have never watched the credits, you can listen to <laughs> Bill doing that song. And when you hear the aliens, that's just me. Wow. Awesome. <laughs> a little tip. <laughs> you thought you knew your childhood, but you didn't. That's fantastic. But that um, was, a, again, that's that whole thing of direct videos were, you know, a whole different thing. They got technically really great. Uh, mm -hmm. Their stories went up and down. But, um, you know, that and everybody started copying that thing. It was a different world. And now that world is over. I mean, they started doing fantastic things with Tinkerbell. Um, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I kind of pointed, I had one meeting where I said to the people, uh, this is a lower executive at Disney, saying, you know, the people who were kids watching the Disney afternoon now have kids who watch cartoons right hmm. if you did like a cg you know ducktales or darkwing or something yeah. like that you might have a few people want to buy it and share it with their kids uh and the person was only told to like look for a certain kind of idea yeah that, that, was, that was outside about something outside of that little range so yeah. i'm sure it never got more in that room and again i didn't want to push because one i don't get anything out of it and two right. I don't want to be the guy pitching, hey, you should do my show. <laughs> yeah. you know. But they uh, are. I mean, they, they announced last year that they're doing a mixed live-action CG hybrid Rescue Rangers. I don't know if it's still in production, but they did announce well, that's that. The thing. Okay, and they didn't really announce that. This oh. is what happened, because at the time that came out and people said, we're going to start petitions to make sure that you get part of it and da-da-da. Right. And I, I tried to stop all of that that I could. Because <laughs> I said... This is what happened. I mean, I tweeted the director and looked at his work, and I said, hey, your stuff looks great. You know, congratulations. If I can help at all, let me know. Um, I said, this is what happened. A fan, a huge fan of the Rescue Rangers, just like you, who happens to be a filmmaker, pitched an idea to Mandeville Films about doing the Rescue Rangers with a live action element, which to me makes perfect sense because they're supposed to live on the edge of the human world. Right. Um, and that's the charm of the, the thing. I said, okay, that film company had a deal with Disney. They said, that does sound like a cool idea. Let's pitch it. Disney said, hey, that sounds like a pretty cool idea. Let's develop it. That's all that's happened. Oh, no okay. script. It was not on a production schedule. It was just a fan who had a great idea um, and pitched it, and Disney saw merit in it. I have no clue of where it is, um, and basically it's that director's job to write it. I don't know if he's written it or, or where it is, but it was not like, 
coming out in 2016. Yeah. And amongst all the other superhero movies comes the original <laughs> detectives. Uh, so it's like, why assume it's going to suck? Why assume it's right. like you guys think you're a fan and you're the protector of the dream? Well, so did this guy. He's just yeah. getting to make a movie. Yeah. Um, so I'm always open to stuff like that, you know, and I would be happy to, you know, consult on that sort of thing or, or take money payments for extortions. <laughs> don't say good things about it, you know. Um, and to me, that one's is a complete natural. It's not. Whereas, well, I won't talk about other movies, but just, I mean, the whole thing was. I wish we'd played more attention to the human world because the cool stuff of the rescue ranges they're only like three inches high and too often they would stand in front of a flight of stairs and the stairs and they're taller than the stair step it's yeah. like no they're like the mice in cinderella that that should be a big deal to get up those steps but you know we didn't catch all that stuff as it was going through and at a certain point it's like oh i caught it but i can't do anything about it Moving <laughs> right um and it's not like it changed the story but it might have it would just be a subtle change in the world that would give it a unique feel yeah know, which evidently it had and you know but i you know it was fun that's even though i was using a couple of stars in the parts it was still creating a new show you know right and in darkwing it was creating a whole universe and you know my favorite <laughs> character in darkwing is goslin because mine it too. didn't really gel as a show <laughs> until she was created because the whole right. idea of what if batman had a uh little girl to raise and she refused to stay at home yeah. uh and that gave heart to the show so it wasn't just going to be a, a superhero parody i have one more question and then i know justin's got a lightning round for you which is, is all right we can wind things down but my is last question Megabolt lightning round <laughs> <laughs> um really quickly so one of my favorite disney films is robin hood and I read that you actually did some development work on adapting that for a Disney Afternoon-esque type show. Um, and I was just wondering if you could share what happened there and where it stands. Yeah, I mean, well, I know it didn't develop, but... Well, it was well after the Disney Afternoon. Yeah. I did... God, when would I have pitched that? Whatever. It was more about... God, let me think of it. I'm pretty sure they were all younger. That was the gimmick. It wasn't like Muppet Babies or something, but it was right. more like, again, kind of Goslin thing. Let's make them all kids. Pretty sure that's what it is. I kind of vaguely see the paper I typed on. Uh, <laughs> I think we called it... That seems too corny even for me to call it Robin's Hood. <laughs> Yeah. I love it. I love it. Some of the worst times of the Disney afternoon was when people were trying to be too cool. It's like really, because it's no longer cool now, and it's not going to come out for a year. Um. Anyway, that's all it was. It was just the idea, as I recall. That's the nature of the idea. That is yeah. to how do you tell the take those characters, put them together. It's like an alternate universe sure. kind of. Yeah look at that sort of thing was it just an idea or were there ever sketches made no just my own yeah. on the original piece of paper because yeah. i am an artist too i would always pitch with some of my own drawings you know yeah. doing it right fascinating okay justin take it yeah away. um i saw just briefly before the lightning round did you see the april fool's article that came out announcing darkwing duck's return 
I don't know if you saw oh, that. Jim Cummings. Yeah, I don't know where. Yeah, wherever it was. I think yeah. it was actually a year ago. Oh, was it? okay. Yeah, but it, yeah. it made the rounds again. I was just. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you need more of me, uh, yet less of me at the same time, I was just on um, uh, Rob Paulson's podcast. We recorded at the uh, Improv in Hollywood, and it was about the Disney afternoon because Rob, right. of course, was the voice of um, Pete's son. Okay, Max. On, on no, Pete's no, Max is goofy. No, yeah, Max is goofy as shit. Yeah. You're doing the same thing I do. I went yeah. to that. <laughs> oh, I know. Anyway, I, I know what uh, it looks like. <laughs> yeah. And it was Corey Burton, who's done a million voices, uh, and is was Dale. And uh, then Jim Cummings, uh, Pete Renaday, who did characters, and Chuck McCann, who did Ducksworth and, right. and DuckTales. Uh, also, all sorts of other voices and his I mean, he's 80 now. He's had a huge career in kids entertainment and entertainment mm -hmm. in general. Uh, anyway, I think that just went on iTunes. So yeah. whatever Rob Paulson's. Uh, Talking Tunes with Rob Paulson. Talking Tunes. There you go. So <laughs> I think the last episode or the episode before was the one I was on. So okay, we touched cool. on, because it was about the Disney afternoon, we touched yeah. on a, you know, a lot of this stuff, except you get to hear talented people doing voices. Yeah. At the same time. <laughs> I love Rob. Definitely I can check it out. Definitely. We'll probably link to it when we put this up because I love Rob. And again, my daughter interviewed Rob too. And he's just, he is so sweet. And he's just, so you don't really guy. know anybody. It's all your daughter's connections. She We're is very shy. She, and you're saying like, I have this little girl who would love to talk to you. She, she actually sets up all our bookings for interviews. Yeah, <laughs> she's our agent. Yeah, yeah. She's five years old and she's a whirlwind. She, she knows more people than I do. So, <laughs> all right. So I got a quick little lightning round here for you. Um, a lot of the characters, I guess are, no, a few of them are Darkwing. Or you really there. embarrass me when I don't remember any of my own characters. But okay, no. okay. Favorite Darkwing Duck villain? Uh, Megavolt, specifically as written by Doug Langdale. Doug, okay. who's currently uh, executive producer on uh, Puss in Boots. Uh, I know I'm taking some of the lightning out of the light. <laughs> um, That's okay. No. Anyway, he just had a way of thinking of Megavolt that I loved, and I, I know I would never have thought of that. It, the one I always quote is, Megavolt knocks over a jewelry store, but he doesn't take the jewels. He takes the light bulbs that were in the display <laughs> case, runs out in the sidewalk and say, be free, my children. And, of course, they all <laughs> crash on the sidewalk. And it's just like, how did you think of that? That's that just perfect. amazing. Uh, but Megavolt by far. All right. And I think you now, touched second on... Second up, I have to say is Bushroot because yeah. he was such a sympathetic guy. If we did more episodes sooner or later, I'm sure he'd be part of the good guys. Right. Um, and I think you touched on this next one earlier, uh, your favorite Darkwing episode. That's hard because I, you know, yeah. I'd have to review them, but they tend to be things like uh, sinking feeling. I always go to, which I mentioned possibly comic book capers because we right. played with the medium. So, okay. One of those two. Cool. Um, what is your favorite cartoon or animated television show in the last five years? You know what? I don't see that much because I get home from work and then I try working right. on other ideas. But um, I, just offhand, I'd probably say Gravity Falls because it's such a unique show, even though I haven't seen it. Although, man, I remember there's a thing that the – that they were on a lake to try to get a picture of the lake monster. 
Right. And the kids said, and he was making fun of a real thing, which is how come people always lose their cameras or it's always a blurry yeah. picture? He says, I am prepared. I have 13 cameras. There's <laughs> no way this is going to go wrong. And the thing surfaces and in like three seconds. They go through every camera, a different <laughs> gag of how he loses it. The other guy eats it or falls overboard and all that. It was just hilarious. And, and uh, the show is beautifully art directed. And they yeah. have this whole other subcategory of clues of a bigger mythology on the level of lost or, you know, right. or anything like that, that they did with intent to tell this bigger, bigger story. And it's just, I, you know, the show is great. I have to finally, you know, if they ever put it out, you know, yeah. get all the episodes. Watch it through. Right. Um, besides Darkwing Duck, who is your favorite Disney Afternoons character? Goslin. Because even on even on Darkwing, Goslin was my favorite. Okay, character. perfect. Uh, what, in your opinion, what is the most brilliant animated movie of all time? <laughs> that might be loaded, like a. <laughs> you know, worms, I, but... I can't answer that just because there's. It's too many. Awesome. Yeah, there's many awesome movies, and if you pick five awesome ones, they're all going to be awesome for different reasons. Right. You know? Um. So nothing springs to mind, and. Cool. You know, my like in the old days, I'd say, oh, 101 Dalmatians, but that was pre kind of the new Disney. Right. Um, Aladdin is such a romp and a fantastic movie. Um, Wreck It Ralph is right. such a fantastic movie. That was the year everybody felt like, oh, that new Pixar film, Wreck It Ralph. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's like, no, that would be the Disney <laughs> film. Like, what about that Disney movie, Brave? No, that would yeah. be. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and uh, jumping over to comic books is the last. And Incredibles, one. of course. As a oh, fan. right, of course, yeah. Um, who who is your favorite comic book character? Um, when Marvel came along, was certainly Spider-Man. In the early days, we had a small group that we all picked a character to be to play act, and I picked Spider-Man. Uh, on the DC side, I love Green Lantern. Um. Loved the work of Gil Kane back then, of and Carmen Infantino on The Flash. Yeah. But Green Lantern, mm-hmm. I, you know, as far as I mean, when I was younger, it was like I wanted to be Mighty Mouse, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Superman. But uh, awesome. But I just loved. I think Green Lantern. I liked the art and the their science fiction feel of the stories was cool to me then. So. Great. Well, that's that's the end of my lightning. How did I do? Did I get them right? I don't know. <laughs> a, a plus. A, ding, ding, Excellent. Ding, ding, yeah. um, this has been fantastic. I especially enjoyed – I'm a huge Disney Parks uh, fan, and the, hearing you talk about the history of it, that was – you know, that was, I was came in expecting to talk Darkwing, and then that was just awesome. <laughs> so I just wanted to thank you for coming, Tad. It's been great oh, talking no, with you. My pleasure. You know, one quick thing when you say pirates, people say – they used to take um, polls at Disneyland every once in right. a while and like, what kind of ride would you like to see? And again, Tony Baxter pointed out that it's not like people pulled it, you know, turned in a bunch of cards that said, we'd kind of like to see a town burning, <laughs> village, maybe women being raped. How's that? You want one of those up your sleeve? But then after that ride, everybody said, oh, we want to see some Pirates of the Caribbean, but cowboys or Pirates of the Caribbean, but dead yeah. people or, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. That's fantastic. Oh, that's cool. great. Is there anything else you had, Jamie? Um, this has just been a, a pleasure. I, I, 
can't even explain this has been fantastic and we've we've gone a long time here and we could probably do this again yeah. two or three times and just not cover the same ground again <laughs> so you, the career that you have is, is the envy of many many an animator and storyteller i am sure um and uh it's just you know the, your fingers have been in so many different classic classic projects and and, and it's just been amazing to have you on and just sort of talk, just scratch the surface about what you've been involved in. So this has been great. So thank you well, so much. Thank you. I mean, my thing is, is at this point is looking back to myself and saying, oh, what I didn't know at the time, you know, what right. I could have brought to it, you know, or like uh, putting that little extra effort in at that point, you know, really would have paid out in dividends or mm -hmm. So that's all stuff that I carry with me now. I never feel like I always enjoy working with people who don't feel they know everything. Yeah. Right? It's just like, I'm always learning. I want to apply it to a new show. And those are the guys I work with. Uh, there's such fantastic talents out there now. Uh, and coming out of schools, you know, I see portfolios of stuff and I always think, Oh my God, I'm glad I'm not trying to get in the industry now. <laughs> there's no way I can stand up to these people. So. Um, did you have anything you wanted to plug at the end? Just your social media or website? No, uh, not really. I mean, they, people, I have a blog that I rarely post to that you can find. But if you Google uh, just a tad, like animation veteran, tad stones, that combination of words will probably get you to it. Or I'm tied <laughs> pad. Uh, if you go back in the archives, you'll see like how to pitch an animated show. Right. Um, and it's, not like it always leads to success or I would have sold a lot more shows, but it's kind of my thinking of, of good things to do and random bits. Also linked there is my old Hellboy animated blog, um, which I did at least a weekly post while that Hellboy stuff was in development and produced. So if you go back to the beginning of that one and read through, you actually see the thought process of, and the production process, literally, as we worked through those things, why the designs the way were the way they were. Uh, I know I, I wrote one post about retakes, which is like your animation comes back and you have this system where you can, you say, this is what you did wrong. We ask you for this, or this is what we have to live with. And I got letters or posts about, we've never heard of that before. You know, it's like, that was fascinating. I went, oh, okay. Wow. But I, I would say the Hellboy animated blog that's connected to that is okay. you're an animation enthusiast. Um, and uh, I try not to be too full of myself, but I probably am in some of those posts. So <laughs> take it all in a sack of salt. Do you ever, um, do you ever make appearances? Like, do you ever go to Comic-Con or anything like that where people might be able yeah, to I catch you? Comic-Con generally every year because my son and my grandchildren are down there. Nice. Uh, so I just stay with them. So I never have to worry about getting to the hotel roulette um last year i finally said you know what i'm gonna take a few years off and my son said yeah next year we're thinking of letting the kids go for the first time oh uh. <laughs> it's like i can get them in early so or free uh anyway i don't have any panels scheduled sometimes there's been the last couple of cons uh always out here on the west coast um where they say, hey, do you want to be part of our Disney afternoon panel? I've actually backed off of those again. It's like, give me two years and I'll be all over any nostalgia you want. But, yeah. uh, you know, right now I've got to make sure I'm 
focused on the new stuff. You know, I don't mind talking about it at all. Yeah. Although I always feel like, am I telling the same stories? So it was nice that you guys came up with some different questions. (laughs) Do you ever make it to the East Coast, like to New York or anything like that? No, I'd be happy to. Well, I mean, only if there's something I'm on that's paying the way. But like Hellboy, we did New York Comic Con. Um, And that was only the second year, I think, of New York Comic Con. But uh, I'm always open to being invited anywhere. So, you know, someone can pay my way. I'm happy to come outside <laughs> and talk. And obviously I have no trouble talking incessantly. <laughs> well, that is great. Thank you so much, Ted. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. And, uh, you know, sorry to have occupied so much of your evening. But thank you so much. No problem. <laughs> Glad to do it. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks. All right, that's the end of part two. What a great interview that was. We had so much fun interviewing Tad. Um, just a great guy, and we're so lucky to have him on our show. I'm Justin Connors again. I'm at 140 Justin C on Twitter. Um, you can get me on my blog at Life in 140, and also our show. We don't want to forget that. Come on Twitter there. We are the GBB Podcast on Twitter, and Facebook is GBB Show. Jamie, why don't you throw yours out for everybody? I can be found on Twitter at the Roarbots. I can be found online. Uh, my blog is at theroarbots.com. Uh, and we are also, as a reminder, we're part of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. So check out Geek Dad, geekdad.com. Um, a lot of fantastic stuff going up there every day. Perfect. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Have a great week. And get a little dangerous. <laughs> this podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad. The intro music on our show is provided by Key Theory. Go to kitheory.com 